So we're continuing a series about the most misused verses of the Bible, which is fascinating and eye-opening and helpful, and we hope that you have enjoyed it. So now, I wanted to share, when we're thinking about misunderstandings, I just wanted to share a little story from my life, just so you guys will appreciate it. I mentioned my husband. So we met when we were in college. We met at a Young Life camp in Northern California, and don't worry, it wasn't like a forbidden love camp romance thing. It wasn't. We started dating after camp. Um, But I was attending CSU, living here in Fort Collins. I'm originally from Colorado, so I grew up in the Littleton area, and so I was just from here. And he was attending the University of Tennessee. Any volunteer fans? Any people? No? That's okay. That's fine. None of of you. Um, But he was living in Knoxville, Tennessee, grew up around the Knoxville, Tennessee area. That's where he was born and raised. Now, before we started dating, um, I'd never been to the South, had no experience with the South. I don't know how many of you love and claim the South. Any? Okay. We got a couple. We got a couple South folks. Now, bless your heart. You know, say that. You get that. I love and appreciate the South now, but I'll admit to you, I'll confess to you that it took me a minute um, to get used to it, to understand it, if you know what I'm saying. So the first time that I ever visited um, Knoxville, ever met Justin's family, we went over um, to have like dinner at his parents' house, and it was great. His dad, you know, is a lot like him. So if you know him, he's just a big personality, really, really fun. Um, His mom is the absolute sweetest. The dinner was great. But something, there's an accent situation that's happening, specifically with Justin's dad, John, and I literally couldn't understand things he was saying to me. And I'm not exaggerating for just the speaker sense of this, like I'm literally serious, I could not understand what he was saying. He would speak really fast and use slang words that I was like, that doesn't mean anything to me, what you're saying. (laughs) So literally, the kind of the the conversation that we had, he said, y'all got muggers in Denver? And I said, what? He's like, muggers. And I was like, huh? Because I'm nervous. You know, I want them to like me. I'm nervous. And he's like, people that mug you. And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 sure. We have that. <laughs> Another time, which maybe some of the, one of the hardest times I've ever seen my father-in-law laugh, was when we were having a conversation about the word vittles. Now, raise your hand if, you, if that word means something to you. You know what the word vittles means. Look around. There's very few of you. I wish my father-in-law was here. We were having a conversation about vittles, which means food, essentially. Like, people say, vittles looking good, or like, vittles when dinner is ready. But I, it meant nothing to me. Never heard the word. I literally thought it was a word he made up just to, like, tease me. And the fact that I was so serious about being like, I don't believe that that's a word. He thought that was the funniest thing ever. I just never heard of it. But he says all kinds of things. Like they call Justin Little Man because he's the youngest of three. So we were sitting there, you know, around the TV. And he's like, Little Man, loud up the TV. And I was like, what? Loud up the TV. Turn up the volume on the TV is what he was saying. Or he'll say things like, buddy, I tell you what, I might could do that. Literally sentences I've heard my father-in-law say. And I'm like, might could. Interesting. Like just things that I've never known. But that's my father-in-law. It's, I was nervous then. It's endearing now. I can look at him and be like, I don't know what you're saying. Things are just, I don't know what you mean. It's endearing. But some misunderstandings, like misunderstandings like this, can be funny. Like we can laugh about them. Some misunderstandings can be scary or dangerous, like driving the wrong way on a street because you read the sign wrong. You know, some can be painful. 
like misinterpreting what someone else is thinking or feeling. But the reality is we all misunderstand. But I don't know anyone who wants to misunderstand. No one's like, yes, please, I would like to get that wrong. Like, I would like to misunderstand what you're saying. I don't know anyone that would say that. And that's one reason why I think I love this series so much. You know, it's, it's tricky talking about misused verses because oftentimes we're the ones who misuse those verses. It's easy to be like, I get it right every time. They don't know what they're talking about. Or maybe if you're like me, it can feel a little painful when we really love and are attached to a verse. It's painful to say, oh, maybe I got it wrong. That's kind of hard. So this requires a couple of things. The series requires that we um, be honest and humble and that we try to come to the table with fresh eyes. Our heart as a church, and really the purpose for these Wednesday night gatherings, I'd say for the series specifically for sure, is to stir a desire within us to be learners. You guys get this? You're here. Thanks for being here. You guys are here. You could be anywhere else. You could be watching Game 7 of the World Series that's happening right now. You could be watching This Is Us or Stranger Things. There's a lot of different things you could be doing, but you're here because you're learners. You're leaning into this. I want to be, I think it's safe to say that we want to be learners of Scripture, to have an attitude and a posture of learning and pushing in deeper to what the Lord is teaching us. And with this series specifically, taking a deeper look at scriptures we often know and love and trying to take them beyond, you know, what we've known, beyond face value. So that's what we're continuing to do tonight. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to open up to Romans chapter 8, or if you have your Bible on your phone, you want to turn it on, Take to Romans chapter 8. Um, the verse we're looking at specifically tonight is Romans 8, 28. So let's just read it together. Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So I want to first chat about some ways that this has been misunderstood. And if you're following along in um, the bulletin, you can follow with me here. The first one is that it's used out of context. It's used out of context. Turns out, it's really important to understand the context of a verse. That's true across the board. There are cultural implications that we can miss. There's purpose we can miss. People often grab verses and stand them alone on their own two feet when they were never meant to be that way, without recognizing their place in the larger story. We pull this out without recognizing where it fits in Romans, where Romans fits in the larger story of the Bible as a whole. This verse is really meant to be read within the context of all of Romans 8. And Romans 8 is all about living in a suffering world. Living in a world of brokenness. Considering the sufferings of the moment and that Jesus and the Spirit are the answer. His love gets the final word and what's true of him is true of us. It's a powerful, powerful, stacked chapter. You could spend years studying it. Maybe you should. The second misuse that often happens is it's used as a feel-good verse. It's like a blessing verse or a blessing box verse. It's a verse to pull out so I can feel good about the things that make me feel bad. And what gets quoted all the time is, God works all things for good. God works all things for good. So let's say a guy's driving down the road and his tire blows out. He's like, there must be a sale on tires. God works all things for good. (laughs) Or, well, I didn't get into that grad school that I want. There's got to be a better one out there for me. God works all things for good. Or I didn't get the job that I wanted. There's got to be a better one for me. Or maybe I didn't marry that guy or girl that I thought I was going to marry. There must be a better one for me. God works all things for good. 
the tricky thing with this is that sometimes this happens. Like sometimes this is, this is our story. Like you can be like, no, that's true. <laughs> this is exactly my story. And if the, it, that is your story, I would submit that that is all because of the grace of God. Not because this verse promises a good thing to follow your bad thing. It's not the promise of this verse. Are you with me? When the good things have truly followed your bad things, all of that is due to the grace of God. And he is gracious. The next thing um, is that it, this verse can raise questions about the goodness of God. It can make people question the good nature of God himself. Because there's a struggle. There's a struggle in the mentality of like, God is good all the time. That's a verse that people say, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. That's like a thing. But there's a struggle in that when life beats us up a little bit. You know what I mean? Facing bad test results, accidents, natural disasters, the ending of relationships. Is God good then? For many people, Romans 8.28 feels like an unkept promise. Sometimes worse, a flat-out lie. And maybe you've been there. You're, you get that. And much of this, I think, is distilled really in our definition of good. What is good? Is good short for success, for financial security, for personal happiness? If that is what this verse is talking to or is speaking about, it sure does seem like God is not keeping his promise to that. The next misunderstanding is that the bad things are actually good things. Bad things are actually good things. No matter how positive you are, how strong of rose-colored glasses you're wearing, things are bad. Like loneliness and pain and suicide and human trafficking, cancer, marriage is ending, losing your job, mental illness. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. And all of it's bad. All of it is bad. And it's offensive to claim that the bad things are actually good things, especially to someone who's in the middle of suffering. That's not helpful. It's offensive. I'm saying, oh, it's blessings in disguise or a silver lining. The Bible doesn't say this anywhere. So what can we hold on to? What can we learn? What does this verse and the verses around it actually mean? And I have a couple of thoughts. But the first is suffering. We have to address suffering, which is the first point of what we can learn. When it comes to suffering, we are not exempt. We are not exempt. The reality is we either are suffering or we will be suffering. We either are grieving or we will be grieving. And this is true for believers and non-believers just the same. This verse says all things. All things will happen. We shouldn't be shocked or overthrown when we face struggle. If anything, suffering is actually guaranteed. Jesus literally said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Sometimes Christians especially can think, whether it's spoken or unspoken, that because we serve and love God, or because we're morally good people, that bad things shouldn't happen to us. We say things like, I deserve better. <laughs> or this is not how it was supposed to be. I love and serve God. But the reality is we all 
face pain. We all will face pain and suffering and hardship. All of us, Christians or non-Christians alike. Whenever I think of suffering, I always think of the account of Lazarus in John 11. It's one of my favorites. I go back to it time and time again. I camp there. I just, I really love it. It's blessed me a ton. And in this account, Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick, who along with his sisters, Mary and Martha, they were dear friends of Jesus. And Jesus comes to town to find that Lazarus has been dead for days. So he knew he was sick. He knew he was going to die. He raises him from the dead. He always knew he was going to. But he still takes a moment in this account. And I wish you could read it. It's just really long. But he takes a moment to be with Mary and Martha, to weep, to feel pain, sadness, anger. Literally, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Before he raises Lazarus, he says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of the Lord? So standing before death and darkness and brokenness, before bringing him to life, which he knew he was going to do, he acknowledges where they are, weeps with them, sits with them, and then also shares where they're going. You'll see the glory of the Lord. It's, prof- it's a profound, it's profound. And I would submit that God hates the suffering and the brokenness in our world. And so much so that he did, came and did something about it. Like he destroyed sin without destroying us. If anything, he takes the brokenness of our world more seriously than we do. I think of Matthew 5 as an example of like how and where we see the way Jesus takes our brokenness more seriously than we do. We can all say like sex trafficking is bad. We pretty much all agree like using another human being as a commodity for personal gratification. We would like for that to not be a thing anymore. We want to get rid of sex trafficking. Jesus wants to get rid of lust entirely from the human heart. We see that in Matthew 5. Or we think of racism or genocide. We would like for those things to be gone. (laughs) And Jesus wants them gone too, even more seriously than we do. He wants to get rid of pride and contempt and rage from the human heart. He takes the brokenness of us and the brokenness of our world more seriously than we do. He hates suffering and brokenness in our world. The next point is that God uses bad things for good. God uses bad things for good. All things are not good. But God can and will use all things for good. And to really understand what Paul means here, we have to look at verse 29. Because verse 28 and 29 are actually linked because of the first word that's in verse 29. It's a little word for. (laughs) So I'm going to read them together. So in 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The ultimate good that this verse is referring to isn't that we'll be successful or prosperous or comfortable. The ultimate good is that we will be conformed to the image of his son. The ultimate good is for each of us to look more like Jesus. Which is the next point. The ultimate good is looking like Jesus. The word in the NIV is conformed, which our English definition essentially means to look like. It's like an outward expression. But the Greek word here is morphe, which is essentially saying that God is going to metamorphose in to looking like Christ. To be a Christian is not that you get 
passionately in love with following rules, but that we become passionately in love with the character of Jesus. And for those of us that are following him, everything is molding us and shaping us into the image of Jesus. He's going to make us like him. Everything in your life is pointing you there. The good, the bad, the average. This verse guarantees that. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, uh, died 10 years ago. And on her tombstone was this quote. I wanted to put up a picture because I thought it was really sweet. But it's, end of construction, thank you for your patience. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? End of construction, thank you for your patience. All of our lives are under construction. And it's beautiful. We're still breathing. We're still here. We're not done yet. So I mentioned that I studied at Colorado State. Go Rams. (laughs) Couple? Hey! And I studied painting, oddly enough. That's what I concentrated in. Um, I still paint, although sometimes not as often as I wish. I I have a couple of my paintings that are like, to show you can leave that one up. But I wanted to share with you um, just a little bit about the process of how I paint, if that's okay. It's a haunting question. When is a painting done? Because in reality, you can keep going and going and going and going and adding and changing. So when I paint, I use oils. It's my preferred. I like that the best. And for me, it's a process of layers. So I hustle at the beginning to try and get everything covered. Like I try to get stuff covered really, really fast. And then I proceed to kind of adjust and change and, you know, switch things over. And I have to regularly, like, take moments to step back and look from a distance to be like, is it, it's different. Like when you're looking at it laser focused inches away versus, you know, looking at it across the room, it's different. So I have to do that regularly. But I can spend hours on like a little area for it not to work. And I have to, okay, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So the process can be long and slow and difficult. And sometimes there's areas, especially that I spend a long time and that I get really attached to. And they're not working and they have to get scraped away. Like it's like a hard, it's almost like, man, it's a waste of time. But if it doesn't work with the whole, it doesn't work. It needs to shift, it needs to change. So it's a process of layers and scraping off and adding and, you know, kind of moving back and forth towards the end goal the whole time. And sometimes I forget the end goal in painting where I'm like, I just light it all on fire, I'm done. Let's start again. You know, I do that basically every painting I've ever done. I hated it at some point during the process. But I press through to the other side and recognizing, okay, this is a process. This is a process. Keep going. Some things are okay. Some things are not good. You know, it's a mix. But I think that metaphor is a, is, is a helpful one because I, I think our lives are like that sometimes. You know, we are all God's handiwork. Ephesians 2.10 says in the New Living Translation that we are God's masterpieces. We are his masterpiece. We all have areas of our lives that will change, things that will get scraped off. But we're all headed to that end goal to a finished product. And I would suggest that this verse suggests looking like Jesus is our end goal. So what in your life today in this season that you find yourself in, what might need to be scraped off? Maybe it's your attitude, (laughs) the places in your life where you maybe have expectations about what your life will look like, entitlement, assumptions that you've made about life or life with God and what that would look like. Or maybe scraping something off looks like shifting focus. If the goal is to look like Jesus, what can you do today to move you towards that? And if you're like, I don't know, I'm not sure, I would encourage you to just ask somebody. 
Ask somebody what it looks like for them. Like, what spiritual disciplines do you love and practice? Ask any of our pastors here. I know they would love to talk to you if that's where you find yourself. But this idea, we got to keep focused towards the end goal and do what we can do today. And what this really is, is discipleship. That is discipleship. So I want to talk about discipleship for a second. And to do that, I want to spend some time looking at the Jewish education system at the time of Jesus. Because it's really, truly helpful to understand. It's a context thing. It makes a lot of other things make a lot of sense. So the Jewish education system at the time of Jesus. Josephus, who was a church scholar at the time, said, above all else, we pride ourselves in the education of our children. So at this time, Israel, the Jewish people, they were the only nation worshiping the one true God. And what they understood was that if the word of God did not make it deeply, deeply, deeply into the hearts of their children, faith in God was always one generation away from extinction. So they took it very seriously. The Talmud said, which is religious writings from the time, um, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil, but after the age of six, we accept him and we stuff him with the Torah like an ox. There are three stages of education for Jewish men and boys. The first one was called Bet Sefer, which translates to house of the book. It was for Jewish kids between the ages of six and 10. Do you, any of you have children between the ages of six and 10? Okay, so you, you know what we're talking about. So this was for all Jewish kids, including girls. This was the only education level that was available to girls. And they would go to the local synagogue and they would be taught by the rabbis. And the primary objective was to memorize the Torah, which is the first five books of our Old Testament. Just casual. Six to ten. You know them. So apparently these kids were avail- like, had an immense learning. They were capable of immense learning. So on the first day of school, kids would go to school, their local synagogue, they would be taught by the rabbis. They would each have a little slate that they would take to school. And the rabbis would take a little bit of honey, which honey in the first century was like very, very rare. It was very precious, very special. It was expensive. It was not something that kids would ever have. It was not something that you would cook with. It was for special occasions, special dinners only. So a rabbi would take a little bit of this honey, and he would put a little bit of honey, just a little bit, on their slates. And then he would say, you lick up that honey. So these kids are looking up, like, ah, yes, it's awesome. You know, so they don't ever get to do that. And then he would say to them, may the words of God be like honey on your tongue. They were committed to instilling to these kids that there's nothing better, nothing more valuable or precious or treasured than putting God's word deep into your heart. At the end of Bet Sefer, most of the kids were done with school. The girls definitely were done. But the top percentage, the boys who showed the highest aptitude for learning, the really sharp ones, they would be invited to the next stage, which is called Bet Midrash, which I might be, I'm sure I'm saying these incorrectly, but but Midras, which literally translates to house of learning. House of learning was available for kids ages 10 to 14. So how many of you have middle school aged folks? 10 to 14. So there were two objectives for this phase, the house of learning. First, they were to memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, the rest of the Old Testament. Casual. Just, it's a lot of memorizing. Which I can, I can, scripture memory for me, it's a growth opportunity. I'll confess that to you. You know, it's, I can't remember lots of things. So this always blows my mind. Like, I know middle schoolers, kind of, <laughs> sort of. Or I, like, understand them, sort of. But that blows my mind. 
ages 10 to 14, memorizing all of that. That blows my mind. So that was the first objective. The second one was that they would begin to make interpretations in this phase. So what does this mean? What does this look like? How am I understanding this passage? How does this play out in real life? And they were beginning to think critically. And the way that they would do this was with the rabbis was a method of learning where they would ask questions like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the student would demonstrate his knowledge with the rabbi's question by the question he answered back. So like, I see your question, and by my question you understand that I not only know the answer, but I'm like taking it up a notch. Now on a side here, we know that Jesus went through all the stages of education. He was a rabbi. Makes sense. He would have been a superior learner. <laughs> Selected as a scholar. He is king of the universe. Um, but in Luke chapter 2, which if you remember Luke chapter 2, that's where his mom and dad lose him for three days. Which parents, I mean, if you like, you know, Mary lost the savior of the world. So, <laughs> this can take a breath. You know. But we read this account, you know, where he's been lost. And you read it and you're like, man, Jesus is a little bit of a sass mouth. If you remember, like, your mom about lost your mind. You're gone for three days. But the sassy part, Jesus says, well, where'd you think I was going to be? And I was like, you're about to be grounded. That's where you're going to be. But he was at the temple asking and answering questions with the teachers of the law. He was smack dab in the middle. He was 12. He was smack dab in the middle of Bet Midrash. So it actually wasn't sassy. That's what he does all day, every day with his kids his age. And with the teachers of the law. Like, that would be the first place y'all would look for me. So this isn't a different place. Doesn't mean, like, what I do all day doesn't change. It really changes how we read that, doesn't it? When that happens, we don't understand something. We always got to be like, why don't we understand that? We got to dig deeper there. It dramatically changes that. So anyway, we look at rabbis in this time. They were the most revered, respected, knowledgeable men in Jewish culture. So for the last phase, the best of the best students had a shot at it. It was the last and final stage of learning, and it was called Bet Talmud, which literally translates to disciple. So these boys would approach, you know, these powerful and famous rabbis, and they would say, can I be your disciple? And at this point, the rabbi would, like, rake this kid over the coals. They would grill him, ask him all these questions. They would decide for himself, are you worthy? Are you worthy to be my student and ultimately to carry out my ministry. So either the rabbi would say, like, yep, I find you worthy, or they didn't. And they would send that boy back to do it. They would, like, apply the family trade. And you can imagine, I mean, all the time and energy that was spent to get to that point. If you were told, no, that you weren't worthy and to go home, it would be devastating. Like, it would be a crushing, devastating thing. But if you were selected for discipleship, it was a massive honor. So if your kid was chosen to be a disciple, it honored the family, it honored the village, it honored their local teachers. If he was selected, he would leave his parents, he would leave his home, he would leave the family business, which is no small thing. He would leave everything he knew. And he would follow his rabbi around 24-7, learning from him. Which this also helps Matthew 4 make a little sense, which is the calling of some of the first disciples. They're fishermen on boats, and you read it. They get called, they just leave their dad in a boat. They leave the nets. They leave their dad. And you read that and you're like, you just left your dad? Or at least if you're me, I'm like, they just didn't say die? They didn't feel like they needed to? Like, it's bizarre behavior when we read it, but it's really not bizarre behavior. Because here comes this young rabbi who has a lot of buzz at the time. 
And he extends this honor to them. That was a door that would have been closed long before. Long before. He's saying, will you be my disciples? That's amazing. So it's no wonder the father was probably kicking him out of the boat saying, swim short, kids. Hustle up. Because it was a huge honor for their whole family. And it's profound to have Jesus say, hey, I choose you. I find you worthy. I mean, it's, whew, it's huge. So this rabbi-disciple relationship and how it was structured. You know, we don't live in a world necessarily where we see this. Where when, they, when it's talked about this in this time, everyone would have understood this. This is the way things just were. This is not the way discipleship is structured for us anymore. We just kind of use the word. We don't actually have the form always. Disciples were supposed to mimic every single word and move of their rabbi. So they would say the same blessings. They'd have the same mannerisms, the same language. They ultimately were going to make the same interpretations. The point was not for these boys to follow their rabbi and then to like evolve into their own brand, to be their own kind of teacher. The point was for one day for them to be an exactly like their rabbi, to carry on a, copy, a carbon copy version of his ministry. And each rabbi was distinguished in different ways, so they replicated themselves and their disciples, and they guaranteed that their ministry would absolutely be preserved generations to generations because of this. To be a disciple was to dedicate their entire lives to looking like their rabbi. It was a huge honor, a huge privilege, and they left everything for it. So for us, as followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, are we dedicated to the goal of looking like him? Are we learners of scripture, eager to study our rabbi Jesus? Jesus didn't suffer so that you would not suffer, but so that when you suffer, that you'll become more like him. God isn't the author of the bad, but he won't keep you from experiencing difficulty. No suffering is wasted with him. And will the suffering that we've experienced or are experiencing, will it be redeemed next week, next month, next year, a decade from now? It could be. But we might not see that redemption on this side of heaven. We can have confidence, that we can have confidence that God is always working for good in the big picture, in the long run end goal. We can't always see that from where we're sitting. I think about Joseph in the Bible and all the terrible things that happened to Joseph. <laughs> he was treated terribly by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold as a slave. He was lied about. He was accused of rape. He languished in prison. But Joseph, as he looked back, said something a lot like Romans 8, 28. Talking to his brothers um, in Genesis 50, Joseph said, you intended to harm me but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. You know, finishing up tonight, I want to read um, just these verses again, 28, 29, but I also want to read it with the last verse in verse 30. So Romans 8, I'm going to read all of them. Um, so verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God's foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
And so those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Which is the last point that I have in your outlines tonight, that we are headed to glory. The best really is yet to come. It's so secure, so much so that verse 30 uses the past tense, glorified, not going to glorify. You are bound to be made as beautiful as Jesus. It's accomplished because it's as good as done. Jesus took care of that with his completed work on the cross. We are headed for greatness and to be conformed to the image of Jesus. He redeems all things, the bad things, the good things, for his ultimate good. And we can hope in that today.